Asshole Cord is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. When you think of great 90s hip-hop, who are the names that immediately come to mind? Biggie? Tupac? Snoop Dogg? Coolio? Okay, Probably not the last one, but odds are that you would include the subject of today's show on your list. At the peak of the shiny suit rap era, when Puffy and Mace ruled the world in neon-colored patent leather windsuits, DMX burst onto the scene with a much grittier street vibe. His career took off like a rocket ship. For a number of years, he was the top dog of the entire rap game. And then, something went wrong. Instead of relaxing and swapping his status to that of a hip-hop elder statesman, DMX's life went down a dark path of drugs, strange behavior, and frequent incarceration. Full disclosure, I'm a massive DMX fan and have been since I was a teenager. Although, to be fair, I never spent too much energy delving into his personal life or history. I just really, really liked It's Dark and Hell is Hot. So when he passed away recently, Randy, Buddy, and I decided to switch gears and dig into the man and the myth in hopes of getting a better understanding of what exactly went wrong. Was the fame too much for him to handle? Or was there always something self-destructive there, hiding beneath the surface, waiting to re-emerge? Prepare to stop, drop, and shut them down while we open up shop on the life and times of Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX, on this episode of Asshole Court. Rough Riders, uh, let's get preliminary scores. Sure. So we uh, we tell stories often about the greatest summer ever. Yes. The summer of 98. Uh, what a time. What a time it was. And DMX, I mean, he had some hits dropping then that was a, a right. part of the a backdrop of the anthem of our summer. That's right. I also have some great memories of him as an actor, and I'll get into that later in the show, mm-hmm. of some good memories I had in college. As far as being an asshole... I, you know, it sucks. I know a good bit about him um, as far as like drugs and some of the shit he got into off the rip. I'm going to give him I think, you know, we say three to four is a normal guy. I'm going to give DMX about a four point two five. I okay. think he's on the, the heavier side of just a normal dude. But I'm sure we'll uh, we'll revisit some facts after the show and see where I'm at. Yeah. Nice. All right, buddy. So. I just like, you know, you guys, we used to jam his It's Dark and Hell is Hot that whole summer. When it came out, that was like one of the best summers of our lives. And I remember like me and Mikey specifically riding around. I had a 1984 Nissan Sentra two-door. The Rough Rider. The Rough Rider. That's That's what what we called it. it. And uh, man, we were just jamming that thing. It was on a tape, cassette tape. Mm -hmm. 
And um, but yeah, we loved it. We I mean, we were bouncing all to it and even doing the research for this show. I went back and was listening to that on Spotify, and I mean, that album just hits. It's, I mean, even today. Yeah. It's knockout. It's so good. It's so fucking good. It's really good. And like, I mean, if you listen to it, it has like the same kick and snare mm-hmm. throughout the entire album. But I mean, like, it's him that brought everything, like just his lyrical cadence, everything that he does. I mean, just my hat's off to him. That whole album, you can just go through without even having to skip any songs. I saw something the other day after, you know, DMX had passed. This guy had posted online and he was like, I never even listened to rap music. He was like, I was really into heavy metal. And then he was like, somehow I came across as dark and hell is hot. And he was like, it was like a heavy metal that turned into a rap album. Yeah. yeah. This is some like dark shit. And it's and like that one track where they're like the crazy, scary organs playing in the background. And <laughs> yeah. I was like. It's so right. It does. It felt like if you tried to make a legitimate hardcore hip hop album that was married to like a a heavy metal album. Yeah, absolutely. He even had that one song, uh, Damien, on there where he's like talking with the devil and like making a deal for his career and everything. But then he had to go shoot some people and even one of his friends that he toured with. That's a fair trade off. Yeah. It was either that or give him his right hand. That's right. Come on, buddy. You know what you said. Yeah, it's dark, man. And hell is hot. hot. (laughs) So... While I loved his music, I also did not really dive into his personal life. I just really appreciated the art and uh, just wasn't consumed with what he was doing in his personal life. So I only have what he raps about. So I got to assume that there's a little bit of truth in there. I mean, like, I don't think he was busting down doors and shooting people, but maybe that's what this episode will help bring to light for me. So without knowing too much off the rip. I'm going to go a little bit harder in the paint than Randy did. I'm going to give DMX a pre-show 5.0. 5.0. As, yeah, it's my pre-assets. And I want, to, I want to preface the show with this, and you're going to think, oh, three white guys talking about hip-hop and a guy in the 90s. Where we came from and where we grew up, hip-hop was the music everybody listened to. Yeah. And we were, I, I, I do, I'm, I'm a true hip-hop 90s mm-hmm. fan, like, I can sit here and we can all sit around and just recite the lyrics. We yep. know all the, we know a lot of stuff. And I often surprise my black coworkers with how much hip hop knowledge that I have, you know, when the office conversation switches to yeah. music and things like that. And I chime in, they're like, damn, Randy, I didn't know you, you know, knew about that. So, you know, just want to put that out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's no surprise that we've told everybody that we grew up in Atlanta and I mean, that's the home of outcast in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, Luda. we listened to outcast UGK, uh, all Ludacris, this stuff from yeah. DMX growing up. Well, and I want to put it out there too, because I've explained this to a lot of people that I met later on in life that I was like, there was really great rock music that was happening in the early 90s, right? Like you had Pearl Jam, grunge. you had Nirvana, yeah. you had, I mean, like Alice in Chains and stuff like that. Stone Temple Pilots. And that was great. And But in the late 90s, it was a desert, right? Like you had, like literally it was like Matchbox 20, Third Eye Blind, stuff like that. So the, I think the beauty of rock music up till that time was that it was like sort of rebellious in nature. And for teenagers, that's what you want to do. But in the late 90s, it was like almost like you married it to like soft rock. It just didn't feel the same way. So what became the rebellious music in that second half of the 90s was rap music. Yeah, sure. And I mean, that's we were. Where, that's oh, where Master P blew up. I was about to say, yeah. Master P was a huge. No Limit yeah. Soldiers, yeah. you know, and, all of them. And as a, like a function of that, like we. I think we just gravitated towards that. It filled in that gap of like rebellious music. And so we, like we were legitimate hip hop fans, especially in the late 90s. 
I still am a fan of some of the stuff that comes out now, but, but yeah, I mean, it, dude, it was, it was a, it was an interesting time for us and DMX was legitimately groundbreaking thing when that album came out. It was, it was amazing. But as a, like, you know, an adult now you, you look back and no matter how much I love Stark and Hell is Hot and I really like appreciate all of DMX's musical stuff, I think it's obvious that he's not like a normal dude. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to start him off, honestly. And, and this is, I mean, you guys remember me. I, I maybe was the biggest DMX fan out of all of us sitting here. Out of here. the three of us, yep. And I'm going to have to hit him with a 5.5 to start off with. All right. With a 4.25 from Randy, a 5.0 from Buddy, and a 5.5 from Mikey, DMX's pre-show asshole score is a 4.9. Okay. Touching on a 5. Close. Yep. That's it. I have a feeling it might go a little bit higher, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. just have to wait and see. You guys ready to do this? Let's do it. Let's, Let's do it. get it on. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX, is born on December 18th, 1970, the year of the dog, <laughs> in either Baltimore, Maryland, or Mount Vernon, New York, depending on who is telling the story. For real, in the year 2021, we don't know where one of the biggest names in hip-hop was even born. Not there, sure I understand why that's the case. Is there no copy of his birth certificate anywhere? I, I don't know. I was like looking this up, and it's like this, this multiple different stories. I You Google it, and it's like, given name, Darkman X. Like, oh, this is real. This is legit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as much as I wanted to do deep research on this, I'm fairly busy with my regular job, so I didn't actually call like Baltimore or uh, <laughs> you know, and be like, hey, can you send me a copy of this? As much as I want to be a, uh, you know, an investigative journalist, <laughs> it's not <laughs> happening. Earl is born to a 19-year-old Arnett Simmons and an 18-year-old Joe Barker. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Joe Barker. You're the dog, Joe Barker. This is all like, lining up. He was the second child of Arnett. His father, Joe, was apparently a painter who specialized in watercolor paintings of street scenes that he mostly sold at local fairs. So he was the guy... When you go to like a farmer's market or a, a some sort of flea market or something like that, that has a little booth or maybe not even the booth and is just standing outside with like a little slew of paintings. Yeah. And and also what's interesting to me is that uh, the one of the hardest rappers of all time has a dad in the softest segment of art ever. <laughs> Watercolors. Watercolors. <laughs> Bark Ross. Shortly after Earl was born, Joe decided that his watercolor sale prospects were significantly better in Philadelphia. So he moved there and abandoned his family. So again, we have another fatherless hip-hop artist to start off our story. I mean, that's kind of like the formula right there for him to become successful. That's true. But unlike other fatherless hip-hop artists that we often hear about, there wouldn't be any endearing DMX tracks dedicated to the love and comfort offered to him by his resilient but troubled single mother. And that's because from everything I could find on the subject... DMX's mom was pretty much a huge fucking bitch. Yeah, she Ooh, was like, really? honestly, she was a bit of a cunt. She didn't do much to make little Earl's life comforting or easy. First, there was the participation in a fucked up cult, <laughs> the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, yeah. No. He was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. So uh, no holidays for him, no uh, Halloween or anything like that. That's right. And this created a real problem for little Earl when at a young age, he was struck by a drunk driver while he was crossing the street. What? what is yeah 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 hit by a car by uh, a drunk driver what does yeah. this have to do with jehovah's witnesses being a cult organization you may ask well 
His mother decided that the best response to having your son get mowed down by a drunk driver is to just forget about it. And that's because Jehovah's Witnesses are apparently taught to be self-sufficient. So when an insurance rep went to their home to offer a $10,000 settlement, she simply turned it down. And I imagine that some of you are maybe even thinking that this is a good thing. You're thinking that there are too many frivolous lawsuits anyways, so good for her for not trying to win the lawsuit lottery. And sure, there are some dumbass suits that get brought up, but hey, if my son gets hit by a fucking drunk driver, you better believe I'm holding him financially responsible for the aftermath. The hospital visits, the meds, the therapy, all of it. The pain and suffering. Oh, I'm calling one of those dudes on TV. Like, yeah. yeah. It's the responsible thing to do. Refusing that isn't being self-sufficient. It's being stupid. Yeah, right? Like, So she came out of pocket for all of that? I mean, I, yeah. Or didn't, didn't pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She, well, they didn't have any money. It yeah. was on her yeah. either way. I'm yeah. calling John Morgan and Morgan and Morgan. And <laughs> fucking getting paid, son. Morgan and Morgan and Morgan's Morgan. 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 Yeah, Morgan and Morgan and Morgan and Morgan. Morgan and Morgan and Morgan's Morgan. And uh, just want to note here, Jehovah's Witnesses don't even believe in blood transfusions either. So I'm going to say that there's a lot of dumbassery involved in that. What's church. the number? Do you, what the, the number of people that go to heaven that they believe? Uh, oh, well, it's it's a based on hundred thousand. It's 144,000, which is um, specific. It's very specific because it's like That's it's based less than on one percent of oh yeah the population. Yeah. Well, they don't do blood transfusions. I'm sure they're not great at math either. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look, the thing is that there was a line in Revelations that said that there would be like 144,000 people that will be the chosen ones or whatever it is. And they've just kind of ran with that. Now, at the time, you know, 2000 years ago, 144,000 seems like a fucking monstrous, monstrous group of people because the largest cities at the time were probably roughly around right. that. Like we'll save all of Los Angeles, and you're like, it's pretty good. All right, <laughs> yeah. But nowadays, good with that. One hundred forty-four thousand dollars doesn't even like warrant a red lobster. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, shit, you got to beat out some stiff competition to get up there because over time, you know, if there's one hundred forty-four locked in there, you got to beat out the worst Jehovah's Witness to get into heaven. Yeah, because there's definitely like millions of Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right. Yeah, I mean, how many have made it so far on that list? You know, that's that's the well. Thing. Now let's also think about this. If you ask the general public if they're smarter than the average person, what do they tell you? Of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So that 144,000 is only relevant to where their mindset is. They're like, dude, I'm so fucking devout. Of course, Jesus wants me. Do in you here. know how many fucking doors I've knocked on? Yeah. How many true. people I've turned to me the Lord? Me and my entire family are going up there. All right. Yeah. yeah. I think, is that the one that, no, that's the Latter-day Saints that are called elders. <laughs> it's funny so i have a great story here hold on and so now this is a side note here there was a me and randy were roommates for a long time and we got a knock on the door and this actually happened a lot but there was this one specific moment where they came through and randy's a huge braves fan always has been and so he was watching the braves game and i was mostly like kind of like just zoning out Anyways, they knock on the door, and Randy is kind enough to just answer the door because he's a better person than Yeah, a I few am. beers deep on a Sunday yeah. watching the ball game. And sure. he answers the door, and the guy starts trying to talk to him about, you know, the religion or whatever. And uh, his name badge says Elder... Uh, Steve or Elder whatever. something. And <laughs> Randy stops him, and he goes, Hey, man, I really appreciate that, Elder. But... <laughs> he said, I'm trying to watch the Braves game right now. You know, I was just being honest. Yeah. And I'll give you a few seconds, but we're not going to interrupt the Braves game to turn yeah. to the Lord here. Elder. He called it because he thought his name was Elder. I thought his first name was Elder <laughs> and not just that was his title. 
Yes. Like Elder Steve. I was like, look, Elder. Uh, well, and on top of that, I mean, what do you think when you see a 20 year old named Elder? <laughs> like, are you a religion of fucking teenagers or like <laughs> toddlers or something? Wasn't there also a part of that story where like you told them to come back on Saturday at like four or something like that and you knew you were going to be out, but Mikey was going to be there? That's very possible. That's very <laughs> possible could have happened, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. But yeah, it's a good time. Probably smoke barreling out of the uh, the condo at that time. That's how they'll save you. <laughs> You're like, cool, man. If well, we can save them, we're going to make it up into heaven. We'll it. be one of the 144,000. So, all right, but it wasn't just that Arnett was like a devout Jehovah's Witness. She was actually <laughs> also physically and mentally abusive to Earl. According to an article I found, quote, beatings were habitual. Misbehavings meant his mother, her boyfriends, and sometimes the mailman would rain down blows with belts, extension cords, hangers, and brooms, which is pretty bad, but also like really fucking weird. Like, why the fuck was DMX's childhood mailman beating him with extension cords? <laughs> That's what I was thinking right now. Like, it's, it's one thing to be scared of your parents or her boyfriend or something like that, but when the mail truck comes pulling up, you're like, oh shit, mm -hmm. you know, run for the back door. Yeah, I mean, my mailman just only made me touch him. And it was never. So our, our mail lady now uh, doesn't like my son because when he was <laughs> when he was younger, he would stand by the mailbox. And um, I guess she wanted to put the mail in the box and he would always be like, just hand it to me. Or he would be waiting on something to come in the mail. And he's like, did this come for me today? And she just she doesn't like him. So uh, fucking great. they've had beef for so, years now. So she, <laughs> yeah. so she rained blows on him with an right. extension cord. Yeah. She threw his packages like out yeah. and stuff like that. I just get a mental picture of like uh, some Amazon guy like opening the package to find an extension cord and just beating the crap out of a young DMX or uh, Randy's son. Oh, my God. Arnett would also often scream at Earl things like, You ain't shit! Just like your father! Go on and start painting some watercolors. <laughs> Man. According to him, one night he erased something in his mother's notebook and she knocked out two of his front teeth with a broom. So oh, Jesus, there's that. Dear mama. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I'm surprised he didn't go after her like Eminem did. <laughs> he said, you always was a crack fiend, mama. You knocked out my front teeth, mama. mama. <laughs> so just the other night, my son was acting like a moron in the kitchen and he busted a ketchup packet. You know how you can hold a packet up and squeeze it and act like you're going to pop it? It popped. And it went all over the ceiling and the wall. And I was like, pretty much clean it up. And if it stains, you're repainting the kitchen. So you, beat him, with, you beat him with a jumper cable? Well, I was going to say, imagine if DMX's uh, mom was his mom. I mean, he erased something in her notebook. and Well, yeah, but she was like, if he busted a ketchup packet, she was like, you just fucked up your dinner. <laughs> That's history repeating itself right there, because didn't you squeeze a packet of ranch dressing over one of our friends in their new starter jacket? And it busted all over his face and his jacket. And uh, and it was a black starter jacket, too. It was too. the San Jose Sharks, if yeah. you guys remember those. Well, they were came, hot back in the day. He came back from a bukkake flick, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a trip to the office for old Randy. That's it. Yep. That's it. <laughs> but for all the abuse, at least Arnett did provide a solid financial foundation for Earl thanks to her top-notch sales for the Mary Kay Cosmetics. She's oh. a Mary Kay salesman, huh? No, I'm just kidding. They're, they uh, were broke as fuck. Yeah. Big surprise, right? According to an article I found, quote, it said, Dickensian poverty forced him to sleep on the floor with roaches and mice crawling over him in the night. He could stand the roaches. The rodents tortured him. Jeez, man. And the frequent guests to his house weren't great role models either. 
His aunt gets him drunk for the first time at the very mature age of seven. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that same year, seven years old, maybe even the same day of his first drink sesh with Auntie, little Earl catches his first case for stealing an Intamin's cake from the market. And yes, he actually name-dropped Intamin's, which works out perfectly <laughs> because Intamin's is actually the sponsor of today's episode of Asshole Court. <laughs> That's right. Want a pastry in a box? X gonna give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> actually, side note, another source has DMX's first arrest listed for stealing a dog from a junkyard so who knows? But I like the cake stealing story a lot better. So I'm gonna go with that. There you go. But he has a lot of dog references early in life. Or animal references in general. The rodents, the dogs. The dad, Barkman. Barker. John <laughs> Barker. Barker. The yeah. dad, Barker. Barkman. That's what he is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, it's it's Earl Barkman. <laughs> How many times have you listened to an episode and thought, man, I wish they would have said this? Well, now with our interactive social media pages, you can. Let us know what you think about our show subjects and give us your scores. We'd love to hear from you. Well, most of you at least. Let's dive back into the action. This arrest sends little Earl to Youth Division Jail. At seven years old, guys. What the fuck, dude? Jeez, you almost wonder if that's actually a step up from what he was living in. Yeah, I mean, this Unfortunately. is he's going to deal with this throughout the entirety of his youth here. Uh. But around this time, he also starts spending time at his grandmother's. Now, he apparently loved his grandma. It was like the only respite he had from, you know, just the shittiness of being with his horrible mom who knocks his teeth out with like broomsticks and shit and getting beat by a mailman with like jumper cables. <laughs> Do we know if this is his mom's mom or his dad's mom? It didn't say. I don't know. I would assume mom's mom. I mean, if dad ain't there, dad's mom ain't there either. Right. You know? Usually is the case. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just make an assumption here. All right. And it's here where little Earl feels like some sense of love and, you know, care for like the first time, man. But unfortunately for him, his mother, Arnett, doesn't want him to stay at his grandmother's permanently. And we talked about this in another show. We're talking about like foster home kids yep. and and the Courtney that, Love episode. Yeah, that's correct. Which is that for some people, a child is literally a cash cow. Yeah. And so she can't claim him. Now, this is totally conjecture on my part. I don't know this, but I'm like, why wouldn't you if you're such a shitty mom that wants to like hang out and like fuck dudes and you don't want that dude. You, like, yeah, why, why, I mean, why like, were you they not? sending social services over there to check up on that stuff? I don't think anybody else was claiming them per well, se. No, but the grandmother wanted him to stay there. And, and his mom was like, no, you can't stay at your grandma's. But I mean, like, but so like why? Right. So, I mean, I think rule of reduction here. I'm pretty sure she was just like, I can claim him on taxes. Sounds almost like a little maybe mental illness or drug addiction on That's mom's true. part. Again, yeah. total speculation, but I mean. It just sucks. What, Either yeah. way, you, it shakes out. It just sucks every which way from Sunday for him. It does suck. But even then, I'm like, it, it's maybe I'm wrong, too, because instead of like staying at his grandmother's or even at his mom's, Earl apparently spent a lot of time at group homes where he became notorious for his volatility and violence. They called him Crazy Earl. And this name certainly makes sense, considering that he would do things like throw chairs at teachers and, you know, stab a kid in the fucking face with the number two pencil. Oh, geez. We had a girl in second grade. She had behavioral problems, but I'll never forget. Our teacher was like the sweetest young woman that was trying to do good and be a teacher in the world. And this chick, man, she was so off the rip. I remember one time she got her name written on the board 
and she walked up to the board and erased her name. So the teacher wrote her name and put a check by it. Because remember, you get check marks, oh, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Uh, so she erased the check and she wrote two checks. She erased the two checks, wrote three checks. And this girl walks back to her desk and just tips the desk over and flings the chair. We're in second grade. Everybody yeah. in there is like, this is getting crunk. Yeah. Damn, girl. Jeez, I hear yeah. you. Well, this is an episode and, of Jerry Springer. And the principal right had to come to our room and get her and take her to the uh, to the office. And then she wound up being a lawyer and going to Georgetown University. No, Not true at all. No. <laughs> Which is, honestly, it's it's really sad though when you think about it because I remember those sort of things. You had kids like with behavioral issues, and it was so out of control that you were just like, "Oh, that's the crazy kid that stinks." Yeah, you know what I mean. You're like, "Yeah," but now that we're older and you look back, you're like, "Oh, this kid's home life is fucked yeah. up." There's no they're way just, they're screaming for attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Come and they school. know that there's no repercussions that are going to happen at home as well. That's you right. Know? For a few years, Earl bounced back and forth between these group homes and his mom's, which, again, like I said, it wasn't much better. And one summer, apparently Arnett, his mom, locked him into his room for the entire summer, only allowing him to exit to use the bathroom, which I guess is like, could have been worse. But it really, like, that's also sort of like a, hey, I don't want your room to stink because you took a dump on the floor for like three months. I mean, man, social services should have been there, one. And two, like, that's some shit you see, like, on an A&E special yeah. on Friday nights, you know, like, yeah. that's some fuck shit there. It happens a lot, and it's, yeah. like, even social services it can only catch so many because they're understaffed and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, underpaid, understaffed, underappreciated. That's exactly right. Yeah. Damn. You just dropped a commercial over that shit. Shout out to all of our social service workers out there. Fuck yeah, you guys do the Lord's work. I'm, I'm being dead serious about this because, like, I see it in my line of work where these people have to go to, like, mental facilities and stuff like that, and... It would ruin me. It ruins me and in, in, to see people that are in bad shape or whatever. But I can't imagine having to, children is I, I, I dude. I don't know how you guys do it. God bless you. Yeah, for real. No, it, it definitely hurts me hearing all this. I at least have a little bit of comfort knowing that he at least excelled later on in his life. But damn, well, it's 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 always like this sort of trope about detectives that are like hard boiled because they've seen too many murders and stuff like that. But most of those murders are like adults that are like dealing drugs or whatever. But like social workers that are dealing with kids, Jesus Christ. I mean, they're like completely innocent victims. So maybe we should do a movie about like a social worker that just drinks too much or something. Yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> right. I would. God, you got to drink away the, you know, yeah, everything I can, you I see. Even, well, they'd have to like imagine. commit some sort of crime or have to be something more <laughs> we're, about than- a, we're about to rough draft this shit right here. <laughs> All right, so in 1981, following yet another expulsion from home when Earl was just 10, his mother took him to a children's village, or it was called Children's Village, under the guise of a cautionary visit. Like, she was just like, look, if you don't straighten your shit up, this is where I'm going to send you. But, as it turned out, it wasn't just a visit. Arnett checked him in and left his ass there. It's kind of like Joe Dirt's parents at the Grand Canyon. That's exactly right. Jesus, what a bitch, man. According to him, he didn't even have time to get his clothes with him. Like, he just went, and she just left him with, like, one set of clothes. See you, dude. Good luck. And this was such an upsetting occurrence that DMX actually broke down in tears when describing the event in Rough Riders Chronicles. Quote, right then, I learned to pull away, conceal, and bury whatever bothered me. The other side of me was born there, the side that enabled me to protect myself. End quote. The group home was less than ideal, obviously. And Earl struggled with school, even though he was apparently 
<laughs> they scored him with a near genius level of an IQ test, which again, I'm just at a loss as to how every celebrity seems <laughs> to score genius level on their IQ test. And we've talked about it before on the show, but I don't ever recall getting to take an IQ test, but apparently they decided to give Earl Simmons an IQ test. Like they gave him to all the kids in the group home. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just saying like, I think that a lot of people like to tell the story that they were geniuses as kids, despite how uh, things worked out and their adult life. Well, it kind of goes back. Well, people are like, what's your IQ? I have no fucking clue what my IQ is. It's like 4,000, I yeah. think. <laughs> At least. I'm serious. Though. How many shows have we done where everybody talks about like that this person had an IQ level of a genius? Like 150. And you're like, yeah, really? Well, you're just, a goddamn moron. Yeah. Like your actions don't say that. But well, and then just like statistics <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah it's crazy i don't i mean i don't know if that's just sort of like some sort of weird function of like a journalism and or the person just wanting to explain like oh i was a genius i could have been a hand surgeon but instead i decided to smoke crack and be a rapper i just i don't think i've ever taken an iq test in my entire life yeah, yeah, i don't either. think i have unless you want to count like sats and stuff like that but well that's a different test though yeah so sure. i mean i took an internet iq test <laughs> nice. yeah. and everybody that's what everybody does they're like fuck bro I scored like fucking 140 on there <laughs> and i'm like uh, you're stepping on my foot <laughs> yeah but there's something else that makes me doubt the genius level of earl simmons intellect as a child uh, besides you know just the rational thought of you know maybe you're not a genius dmx a few months after his mother abandoned him to a group home, Earl and another kid at the home decided that a fun project would be burning down a local school. That's right. Oh, wow. That's There's right. the school they were at. That's the right. group home. Yeah. That's right. Both Earl and his co-conspirator were caught and arrested for arson. Earl's defense? He didn't mean to set the school on fire. <laughs> he just wanted to see if the flames would turn blue. Oh, wow. Again, uh, he figured out if flames would turn blue, and then he solved Fermat's theorem. What's Fermat's theorem? It's like literally the hardest math problem in the entire world. <laughs> it's like the one in college where it takes up the whole board. And the professor's like, if anybody can solve this by the end of the year, yep. you get an A. And then janitor Matt Damon comes along That's and right. solves <laughs> it. Yep. And there you go. But when that excuse didn't fly, Earl tried to kill his co-conspirator. And this sent him to the infirmary isolation. You got to kill the only witness. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Well, X was going to give it to him. <laughs> he was. He was. Over the next 18 months, Earl spends a lot of time in isolation. He also falls in love with hip-hop. And then he heads back home to Arnett's. Unsurprisingly, he doesn't enjoy life there, so he spends most of his time roaming the streets at night, befriending stray dogs, and sleeping in Salvation Army clothing bins. I read that. Yeah. yeah. Which I initially was kind of like, well, that's hyper-specific. But then also I thought about it like, I mean, this is- Pretty like, soft. It's close in it. Yeah. It's Yonkers. It's very cold in the wintertime. And like if you're like relatively smart, maybe not genius level, but you're like, hey, there's a whole uh dumpster full of clothes that'll probably keep me warm. Yeah. But I also Shielded thought about from the wind as well. It's true. But I also thought about all the times that we've talked about this on a show where I, I was like, I've scored some pretty sweet shit at Goodwill for fun t shirts. But there's a very real smell to Goodwill, and that's after they like clean these clothes right it's almost like a permanent mothball smell god i think that's kind <laughs> <laughs> i think that's kind it, there's a weird stank to other people's clothes and then like you're like i'm just gonna crawl into that shit but if it's you have it's a general musk 
Yeah. People have a general musk to yeah. them, you know? Yeah. And there's like a combined musk that is every... Community musk. Community musk that is every Goodwill store that there is. That is not to sound like a jerk, but it's 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 repulsive. But while he's actually like roaming the streets and staying in Salvation Army uh, clothing bins, he starts working on his beatboxing skills and he adopts the name DMX from the then popular Oberheim DMX digital drum machine. I like that. Yeah, it's cool. And he eventually turned into like Dark Man X, but he just was just like, yeah. We had so a beatbox machine in college. That's right. We would chase, it was mine. We would chase the girls away. That's right. So Mikey um, wound up giving it to me, and I had two roommates, and we would get real drunk and come back from the bar. Sometimes we'd have some girls with us, and we'd hit the strobe lights, and me and my buddy would uh, sit there and kill the fucking beatbox machine, and uh, they would probably leave after about 20 minutes of... <laughs> torture in their yeah. eyes i guess y'all weren't catching all the poontang off of that no nah. the beatbox machine did not get us laid no it was basically like college level coachella like they're <laughs> you know I mean? like oh hell yeah this is uh, marshmallow or whatever it is but no, i i had that beatbox machine and i but before i moved back to la i was like i can't bring this with me so why not give it to uh randy who yeah. is down in middle georgia i just want to know where that fucking thing's at somebody stole it out of our apartment. I bet you it was one of the chicks that came back. That's what our theory is, is that one of the, the girls we were friends with, she would come over and she was legitimately our friend and would hang out with us. She hated it. Yeah. Hated it. Because yeah. we would fucking get buzzed and just start beatboxing yeah. and making beats. And yeah, uh, she hated it. And it, it wound up sense. missing one night. We're like, God damn it. Yeah. It's the equivalent of when I was a kid and I got really into Weird Al Yankovic. This one tape. So the one with up. fat on it? No, no, it wasn't on that. It was the one that had like a surgeon and also had the, instead of Lola, it was Yoda. And I would, I, I, this is a true story. I would literally wake up in the morning and I loved it so much. Before I was going to school, I would sit there and eat my cereal and play Yoda, Y-O-D-A, Yoda. And my sister got so mad. Like my sister hated it so much. She was just like, would you please stop playing it? And my mom wouldn't, she asked my mom, she's like, please make him stop playing this tape. And my mom was, uh, I was her favorite. So <laughs> that's how it works. So anyways, I got home one day and it was, the tape was just gone oh. out of the box. And, and, and my sister was like, I didn't take it. Uh, I didn't take it. What yeah. happened? Yeah. yeah. What'd you do? Yeah. She told yeah. me, she told me like, you know, 15 years later, she was like, I fucking threw that thing in the dumpster <laughs> or the trash can. You know what I'm saying? So, but yeah, sometimes you got to like help someone out with their own thing. Anyways, DMX, uh, at this point, he hooks up with a somewhat established New York hip hop artist named Reddy Ron. Now, Reddy Ron isn't a name that anybody would know really but you know this is like a local thing because there's like local hip-hop artists the same way you have like local celebrities sure you have local scenes and there's right. always the creme de la creme that's right of those scenes and ready ron basically serves as dmx mentor in the hip-hop game but unfortunately for dmx ready ron also served as his mentor on another hobby Smoking cocaine unfortunately Ooh. the all-american pastime of uh, smoking yes. cocaine DMX, Writing lyrics and staying up all night. It's a way to do it. You know, hey. DMX later recalled that around the age of 14, Reddy Ron introduced him to what's called a woolly. That is a blunt lace with cocaine. But luckily for DMX, he didn't get addicted or anything. Uh, yeah. In high school, <laughs> in high school, Earl did two things fairly well. He ran track and he robbed motherfuckers. Yes, he did. 
Oh, well, if and, you can run track really well, you can probably rob motherfuckers and get away. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's a good, you know, there's some overlap in that skill set. <laughs> um, an article I found noted that he was the second fastest member of the track team, even though he was apparently almost never at school. Which makes me question the academic requirements necessary to participate in his high school team sports. <laughs> but I'm going to get into this here in a minute. I, I hate to say it. I love him. But I feel like a lot of this shit is like massively exaggerated or whatever. Anyways, Earl utilized his natural speed to become an apex predator on the streets of Yonkers. His first victim, according to him, was a lady walking out of a supermarket in Yonkers Getty Square. Jumping out of the bushes... He snatched the purse off her shoulder and sprinted away. Remember, second fastest guy in high school. Old lady ain't catching him. Nope. And the score netted him $1,000 in cash, which he used to buy his dog Blackie a new leather collar and harness and treated himself to a pair of Timberlands. So let me get this straight, though, for real. A lady in Yonkers, <laughs> an incredibly rough neighborhood, leaves the supermarket carrying a grand in cash on her. She might have just cashed her social security check or something for the month. And he Who's knew. getting paid $1,000 in Yonkers on a social security check? Grandma Jenkins, the guy, the lady he robbed. Maybe she keeps it on her in her purse instead of under the mattress. I mean, I think you guys are reaching here. And I'm I the am. biggest DMX fan alive. <laughs> uh, well, not alive. But I, yeah, I'm sorry, dude. I'm like, really, dude, that sounds completely exaggerated. Well, You have $1,000 and you're like, all right, I got a pair of boots for 100 bucks and a dog collar. <laughs> and like no one's carrying, nobody has a thousand dollars in a bad neighborhood that they're carrying in cash. That's their rent for the next like four months, dude. right? Like I said, I'm just gonna go ahead and check a big doubt box <laughs> on this one here. Sorry, X. <laughs> Think this account is probably a little bit exaggerated, but it wasn't just robbing folks in the streets of Yonkers. Oh no, young Earl pretty much utilized his time in high school to rob his fellow students. That's right. So one of the reasons he would go to school is to rob motherfuckers. That's right. Yeah. From an article I found, he developed a strict three stick-ups a day regiment before school, after school, and late night. Three different flavors of people to choose from. He claimed that the morning shift was the, quote, pressure robbery, following kids on their way to school or running up on teenagers with money at the corner store. And then, of course, he had the late night ones where he's like robbing ladies of like $1,000 at a, basically a bodega. So, I mean, he's like, really putting the work in. You know what I'm saying? Like three robberies a day is more than most people brush their teeth. <laughs> Jeez, man. In 1986, the police shoot his dog Blackie dead. Damn, he was 16 then, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, yep, that's right. And according to one article I found, this prompted Earl to show up to Yonkers High School with a sawed-off shotgun taped to his leg, which... I don't fully understand. <laughs> Why did that convince him that he should go to school with a gun tape to his leg? I, he didn't shoot anybody with it. And why would you ever tape a gun to your leg anyway? Yeah, like what kind of tape are you using? Are uh, you I made a terrible mistake one time and taped a bottle of Southern Comfort to my leg <laughs> going into a Braves game. But that's game. actually more realistic. Right. There's a use for this. Man, and it, we use like duct tape. We're in the parking lot pre-gaming and it was decided that I was going to bring the, the full bottle of liquor in the stadium and there was duct tape in the car. And are we they, talking about a handle? No, it was like a fit. <laughs> okay. He, wore, fit. he was wearing Jinkos. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember I had on these camo like cargo shorts. This was like early 2000s. And I duct taped the fucking bottle of liquor to my leg. And I just remember being in the bathroom at Turner Field 
untaping the bottle of liquor from my leg oh, and I ripped taping dude I ripped every fucking hair out of my oh. upper thigh out well, and that's what I'm saying I was like imagine having to voluntarily rip your leg hair out yeah. just to pull a gun on somebody like come on X just get a fucking trench coat or something he's like hey oh! <laughs> hang on a minute I'm gonna yeah. rob you but he didn't even shoot anybody like it's the whole like the, what, have at you least ever, I like, drank the liquor have, exactly have yeah. you ever hung out with somebody that tells you a meandering story that has no conclusion dog they killed my dog and then so the next day taped sawed off shotgun to my leg well and then what happened X well that was it <laughs> like alright it's unnecessary yeah you could just have not mentioned that at all and we'd all be okay at least your story is like I rip my leg hair out to get drunk at a brave for the game. greater good of the group That's yeah right. so we could all make giant liquor drinks on the cheap ski at the braves game there you go yeah makes sense do you have a show subject you think would be a great fit for asshole court hit us up on any of our social media pages and let us know as you know we're full of good ideas and some say we're full of other stuff but we'd love to hear your ideas as well give us a shout and maybe your subject will wind up in our courtroom We'll definitely give you a shout out. Let's dive back into the courtroom. Anyway, after this, Earl decided to add something to his uh, criminal repertoire. He had already uh, covered arson, assault, attempted murder, and robbery. Now he decided to add Grand Theft Auto, which really feels like it should have been like an earlier inclusion, like somewhere after robbery, but somewhere before attempted murder. Or arson. Arson's pretty hard in the paint, too. It is. Yeah, that that's pretty... You cross a line there when you do arson. Yeah. Especially well, for a school, you yeah. know? Yeah, he tried to burn down the school he was at. I mean, I thought about it a lot, too, you know? I don't <laughs> want to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> well, we had that guy calling the bomb threat. We didn't do it, but he called no, in the bomb threat in high school. I remember that shit to this day. That was so you, funny. Randy? No, no, it wasn't me. I had nothing no. to do with that. No, I was actually, yeah, I remember the whole thing because it was like I was. In, it was from the payphone inside the school. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was in class and I watched this master plan happen. And this is how insane it was because this is we're talking about the nineties where everything was like super chill. You do the shit nowadays, oh, you're fucked you're up, done. Yeah, the FBI is coming to talk to you. But like, I remember there were some dudes in the class that were like, "Hey, we're gonna call in a bomb threat so we can get out of class." And I thought it was hilarious. To get out of class. Yeah. 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 I didn't so want to go to school that we day. We had a payphone in the like in the, the commons area. Yeah. In the commons area. And so like right after class, I sort of stood back and observed. And he called from the payphone, which is also visible from the, the main office. office. <laughs> the main office was staffed by a secretary that she knew everybody in this whole school. And I she remember was the grandmother of one of our classmates. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I remember him calling in and saying, uh, true enough, I was standing about six feet away. <laughs> Wasn't part of the plan, but I was observing. And uh, he called in. He was like, I have a bomb and it's here at the school. And then she, I remember she literally like looked out of the glass, <laughs> like floor to ceiling window and saw him at the payphone. And she was like, hey, and she called his name and she was like, what are you doing? And he, <laughs> he hung up the phone. And actually, the whole thing is what, what I, I left out was that they really got in depth with it because they were like trying to take like uh, like Play Doh and stuff like that to like make it seem like C4 or yeah. something like this that. This was like 97. 
And so, yeah, you pull that shit today, but it was hilarious. That I've I'll, got a plastic explosive bomb. I'll never forget. It was like the funniest thing in the world. But she just, I literally saw her face like look over and see him on the payphone. So Earl steals a car and takes it for a joyride in the Hamptons with a friend where he definitely didn't stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> of course not. He was up there getting some uh, Hampton tomatoes. That's right. Like George Costanza's mom liked. Have to throw my Seinfeld reference in for <laughs> every episode. <laughs> Obviously, they got pulled over and discovered the crime. So much for that Mensa level IQ, I guess, right? <laughs> hey, let's steal a car and be the blackest motherfuckers in the Hamptons. Yeah. In lockup at the Suffolk County Jail, he gets put into the hole. For a week, he was trapped in a dingy 6 by 9 box, guarded by sadistic jailers, he said, and forced to drink water from the sink. Now, I've been to jail. Really? I have. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be honest. Now, if you're in jail, all jail toilets are a one and all thing. It's yes. a toilet, and it is a faucet, and it's everything. No, no. You're not like slurping water out of the toilet bowl. <laughs> There's the there's it's a it's stainless steel. There's a bowl yep. you take a dump in, and then up top is a water fountain. So what I'm getting at here is that like he's making it sound out that he was in like zero dark thirty. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when in reality he was doing what I did too at a certain point when I went to jail a few times, and you're just like, I don't have a choice. I have to just drink water out of the top of this toilet bowl. But DMX would go on to claim that it was in the hole. There in Suffolk County and in other extended periods of forced isolation where he would hone his professional persona, Dark Man X. Quote, there was something kind of peaceful to me about being locked up in there, he wrote in his autobiography. Quote, maybe all the months in my room in School Street, all the years in group homes and juvenile had got me ready for what would be a nightmare for most human beings. But I thought a lot and I wrote more than I ever had before. Song after song, rhyme after rhyme, I produced pages of lyrics alone in that box. I shifted flows, changed styles, tried to experiment with new ways to win a battle or excite a crowd. End quote. The next few years, in between stints in jail, he takes a serious run at a rap career. This culminates with a feature in the January 1991 Source Unhype section. And that's actually a pretty big deal, honestly. Because other alumni of the unsigned hype section include Notorious B.I.G. and Eminem. Yeah, Eminem talks about the source in multiple songs that he puts out mm -hmm. all throughout his career. Yeah, unsigned hype is a big deal. They don't know who you are. And I mean, like, you look at the, the pedigree of that, it's, 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 a, it's a big deal. So he tries to capitalize on this and land a record deal. In 1992, to sort of further that thing, he releases a self-produced EP. Actually, let me take that back. He got sort of signed by a smaller group an indie label right and it was enough that they ended up one of his friends that started rough riders they bought a studio with it okay yeah but he releases a uh, an ep which gets some limited critical interest but doesn't garner him a major label deal one of the tracks on this ep is titled the self-born loser you can tell honestly at this point that dmx is really down on himself like check out the lyrics to his first attempt at a hit by the way, find this track on YouTube. I'm dead serious. Give it a listen because it does not sound like DMX at all. At all. It's crazy. Like the cadence is totally different, but more importantly, like his voice is totally different. Huh. And then check out these lyrics. I'm going to read the first set of bars here. Okay. The born loser, not because I chose to be, but because all the bad shit happens to me. I got kids, but their mothers don't want to know me. 
Sisters used to like me, but now they call me homie. Used to have a family, but I'm out on my own. Had to scrap with a pit because I tried to take his bone. Bitches don't like me. They don't kiss me or hug me. They call me kill pretty because I'm mad ugly. I used to get pussy, but I busted off quick. Now I guess none, so I got to beat my dick. Damn. Sounds like a limerick I wrote in the seventh grade. It's true. (laughs) This is DMX. Imagine that lyric. I mean, for real, it's crazy. But at the same time, I mean, that's like his life experience up to them. Right? Yeah. We hear the story leading up to that, and it does reflect exactly that. Of everything that that he said. It's true, but it's just funny. Like, imagine, like, when we're thinking about, like, stop, drop, and then he's like, now I guess done, so I got to beat my dick. (laughs) Right? But, I mean, to me, that at least... He gains a little bit of favor in my book so that hopefully he really wasn't kicking down doors and shooting people dead. You know, that was just the path that he went when he saw, all right, this might not be working out so well, so maybe I'll try to go this path. Yeah. And that's actually what took off for him. So, Well, like I said, I I highly recommend any of our listeners and for you guys to go check that track out because if I played it for you and didn't tell you this, you have no clues to DMX. Crazy. His voice is in complete, it's huh. completely different. And it's got that sort of like DOS effects, like rap beat behind it or whatever. It's very early 90s. You know what I'm saying? So well, it's, I mean, it, like even all the beats that were on It's Dark and Hell is Hot, I mean, like they were very early 808 or very early just um, like Casio sound. It is, but like, like remember the, the, the one track on It's Dark and Hell is Hot where they drop in like this creepy ass, amazing sounding like fucking pipe organ. And it sounds like Dracula is just dropping fucking like 40 yeah. bars. <laughs> yeah, 100%. You know this is not that. <laughs> you know Again, go check it out. It, it totally gave me a different idea. I thought that like DMX came out of the womb like <laughs> it's not like that uh, but so like I said the EP actually bombs sales wise like there was some respect from some hip hop publications but it didn't do well and uh, DMX pretty much falls off the must watch list in the hip hop world over the next five years rumors circulate that DMX is on drugs and again robbing people he has his first child with his future wife Tashira and he's like just in and out of jail. And he didn't apparently mind jail like at all. There's like it a, was a probably a warmer sleep than he was getting in the bins of the Salvation of Army. The Salvation Army and stuff well, like that. He talked about it later in, in like a GQ interview, which is obviously right. famous. Uh he said, quote, before I really had a life, jail was a playground. I'd be like, I'm going to jail and have fun. Jail used to be fun. Uh, three square meals a day and you know it's true now we got uh, in some trouble while he was in jail multiple times as well he definitely did yeah but i mean now again i'm not like trying to like <laughs> i'm definitely not trying to claim street cred but <laughs> i do remember like at the time when i was in trouble and like i was never worried about jail because jail was it's not like oz you know what i'm saying no, like it, it's you're a not time getting, out it is you know it, what i mean, I mean you're not you're not getting butt fucked in jail. You know what I'm saying? You're you're literally it's like what bothered me the most at the time was that the shit that happened after. Like I've got to pay probation. And at the time also, you know, when you're like 19 years old, you don't have like a career. So you're not worried about like oh, I'm going to lose my job. You just sort of like hang out and I read tons of books. I mean, I read like four Stephen King novels in a week because God else, I'm like what what else do you have to do? You yeah. Know? I saw a couple of interviews with him that he did while he was in jail, and 
it didn't seem like he was frustrated that he was in jail. It was more that it was just taking his time. Yeah. It, it was just more like I could be out there making movies yeah. and making albums, but I'm stuck in here. But he always tried to put the spin on it that like, well, God put me in here. There must yeah. be somebody that I'm trying to meet. That Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, what a bunch yeah. of shit. But I mean, that's for real though. Like, you know, it would be different for me now because I have people that rely on me. But at the time, it's just you're like, well, shit, I got to go here and do this. And then like, it, there was never a moment that I was in jail that I was like scared. It was just like kind of boring, you know? Sure. And I would like, I remember sincerely, the one week I had in jail that we had cable at this one jail. And it was USA's Gangster Week. So we got to watch uh, all the Godfathers. Oh, man. And it was also playoff week. And so I got to watch the Raiders lose to the Ravens. Oh. And I was like, really? And Mikey's a huge Raiders fan for everybody that doesn't know this. Yeah. So, so but it was, uh, it was just boring. That, that when I got out was when it became like problematic. A reality. Yeah. Because yeah. so, you're like, shit, I got to go back. And then I have to go and show up to these probation. I have to pay this money. You know, I never went to prison, so I don't know what he was thinking, but I sort of get the sentiment. You're just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to go. It's not like you choose to do it, but it's, it's not really that bad. But anyways, in a stint of sobriety, after he gets out or whatever, he discovers that his grandmother has terminal cancer. Ouch. Three days after she dies, he has a relapse. So apparently he had sobered up for a little while, and then when she died... That was the catalyst that yeah. fell off the wagon. That's right. Uh, and at the time, like I said, his business music partner and Rough Riders co-founder, Joaquin Dean, ultimately finds DMX, quote, dazed and disoriented in a crack house. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. Because remember, he had, <laughs> Rough, right? Yeah. He actually like hooked up with this guy earlier, and they when he got that first sort of like indie deal or whatever, they bought the, the studio. studio. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they bring him down to Baltimore, actually, to sober up. Right. They're like, hey, let's get you out of New York. Let's take you to sober up and focus on your rap career. And long story short, he does. He gets involved actually at that point in the rap battle scene. Like he's not trying to do albums. He's like literally loves hip hop. And he's like, I'm going to do just rap battles like eight mile style. Yeah, exactly. Like doing the rap battles. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also where, like I said, go back, listen to that track. He put out in 92 and then 98. This is where he develops his like famous raspy voice in the barking cadence and all of this culminates with a now legendary rap battle with another then unknown rapper from brooklyn at a pool hall in the south bronx jay-z that's right oh wow yep absolutely yep yeah wow apparently no like some people will claim that like dmx like murdered him and then most people say that it was just like a really great like back battle yeah there's no video of this but it is legendary amongst like hip hop aficionados. Like they're like, this was a huge deal. Like this it is hip hop lore, and, and Jay Z's known for coming off the hip. Yeah, he doesn't write he his never, lyrics down. None of them. Yeah, he, he always write his goes in down. fresh, yep. and that was his yeah. his whole shtick. Very different style. Jay Z's like super smooth and also, but like it's a big enough deal where they still like they you can actually get the address of where this thing went down. Huh. Yeah. Uh, which is really fucking cool to me, man. Was, no, absolutely. Insane. But like I said, seriously, this is like one of those sort of like mythic battles that hip hop has talked about. Like I was saying, like, and so then again, that actually stirs interest in DMX once again. He revives his career off of that. So from that, he actually uh, gets a verse, an LL Cool J's Posse Cut 4321. 
Which, nice. while I was researching this, I went back to it because I'm a massive fan of posse cuts. I just love when everybody gets to throw verses out. You get like seven people to just fucking sure. run their run their best verses, and then and then everybody it's like, it's like rap all stars. It is, and then everybody gets to pick their best verse. It's actually pretty amazing that he shows up out of nowhere, out of a crack den. And then lands on LL Cool J's like Posse Cut 4321, which is uh, no small feat considering uh, his companions, Method Man, Red Man, and Cannabis, which at the time, Cannabis was a big deal. Not anymore, but whatever. I don't even know who he is. It, well, exactly. <laughs> but he was actually, for a minute there, he was a huge deal. And although meetings with Suge Knight fell short, and Puffy ultimately passed on DMX for the locks, who I also love. Uh, it wasn't long before DMX copped a deal and uh, had an album in the pipeline after meeting Leor Cohen on a tip from Irv Gotti. Now, Leor Cohen is a big deal, which is hilarious. Who is he? I don't even know who he is. He's related to Leonard Cohen? No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in the same way he's related to Jerry Seinfeld and they're all Jewish. Uh, but no, Leor Cohen actually is like, if you get into like the rap business, like Leor Cohen is like huge. That's the guy that like literally pulled Jay-Z away from Dame Dash and was like, you need to get your shit straight and like do this thing right. So okay. speaking of Jay-Z and DMX, so they had the rap battle, but then they, they also teamed up for a little bit with Ja Rule. That's true. It was really? DMX, Jay-Z, and Ja Rule had like a little group for a minute and wound up all developing beef with each other. So DMX didn't like Ja Rule because he felt like he was a copycat and he was stealing DMX's like raspy, barky tone. Okay. And okay. Um, him and Jay-Z got into an argument or a beef um, that kind of resulted in like a diss track, but it never really like turned into anything. No, yeah, you're right about that. It was, and, and I'm going to touch on that here in a minute because it was at a certain point those guys were like the biggest names yeah. in hip hop. Oh, 100. percent You look back at the late 90s, early 2000s. Ja Rule was everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Ja Hala. I mean, that was even uh, when 9/11 happened. MTV <laughs> went back and like uh, Kurt Loder was doing an interview telling us about like the World Trade Center's collapsing and they're like we're gonna go over to Jaw Rule well, that was and, it, yeah. and see what's going on with that and that's what Dave Chappelle made a whole skit about <laughs> he was like who the fuck gives a fuck what Jaw Rule thinks about the the World Trade Center's and collapsing? it persists to this day because when a major event happens on the internet someone's always like what does Jaw Rule think? <laughs> <laughs> where's Jaw Rule but yeah, I mean, it was, they, those guys were huge at, at, at the time. Now, almost everyone listening to this knows how big DMX was from the year 1998 to the mid-2000s. But to put a finer point on this, consider his first five albums debuted at number one. Something no other rapper had accomplished at the time or any time. Yeah. It was fucking huge. And he wow. almost had number six with the sixth one. He was a That's few hundred albums short. Yep. Jeez. He starred in multiple number one movies, including Cradle to the Grave and Exit Wounds. Cradle to the Grave. Remember, I alluded to earlier in my intro about some good memories that I had. I don't know if they're good memories, but fun memories that I had. A buddy of ours in college was the manager at the local movie theater. And we would essentially go out to the bar. Movie theater would close down. And we would meet him up there at like 1.32 in the morning. Nice. And watch movies like... A la carte. We would bring beer, whatever else we wanted. I went to a couple of these. Raid the candy shelves. No, we couldn't do that. We couldn't ever like 
because the soda nozzles were off. I have pretty vivid memories of this. We couldn't really get drinks or candy, but we would BYOB this shit. Yeah, we okay. was, oh, we was kill Bill over there. Remember? Man, Cradle to the Grave came out, and I can't tell you how many times we went up there. We watched that movie probably 10 times in the theater watching DMX jump those four-wheelers from building to building. Mm-hmm. I remember one night I woke up in the aisle of the movie theater, <laughs> like <laughs> passed out they're pretty much like dude wake up we got to go home and i was like Ew, i was sleeping on the ground in the movie theater now is this the movie with uh jet lee yeah that's, okay. that's romeo must die romeo must die uh, cradle okay. of the grave was um, we went and saw romeo must die at a drive-in theater in atlanta oh, which was a very dangerous area and i remember we uh, got incredibly drunk at the time my mom was dating a homicide detective where he had shown me a video where a murder had occurred in that bathroom at that uh, drive-in. Yeah. So yeah, I was terrified. Starlight. That's I was right. terrified of going into that bathroom. Uh, so I just peed in a bunch of Gatorade bottles the whole time. <laughs> and it was in the back. Yeah, it was in the back of uh, your sister's uh, Jeep Cherokee. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we watched Romeo Must Die. And I peed in a bunch of Gatorade bottles. And then... Uh, I think I actually watched that movie again like a, two months ago, and it's fucking horrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cradle of the Grave is not a good movie. but no, I, we, it, like it doesn't I said, age well. No, nah, yeah. we watched it. Like I said, the, the highlight was the Rough Riders anthem playing yeah. and DMX jumping building to building on four-wheelers That's in right. New York City or wherever That's right. it was. Yeah. Yeah. St- yeah. He wasn't just a, a rap star. He started in like, and these movies were huge hits. Multiple movies. But he sold over 74 million albums worldwide. Jeez, dude, that's insane. It's a fucking huge deal. Dude was serious. Like, yeah. I, I think younger kids now, they look at him as like, sort of like, oh, that that's the guy that was a rapper and he died. But like, how many YouTube hits does he uh, have? Dude, on his, if, yeah, you, how many YouTube, hits does he have on his Spotify? Right. If YouTube had existed at the time that like Rough Riders Anthem had come out, it would easily have like three billion hits. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. And that's the kind of thing that kind of gets lost today because these were like total albums sold, you know, not right. just hits on one single song. Right. This was total albums. Yeah. Yeah. Like fucking Old Town Road has like a few billion hits on yeah. it. And you're like, take that song and put it up against like. And you got to buy the album. You, have to, you can't just download it. Yeah. You, can't, no. you, you, you can't, can't spend $20. You can't stream that song for free. You have to pay $20 for that CD. Okay. Now that was $20 back in the 90s. Think about what would it be with inflation at right. this point? Yeah. That would be like $35, $40 to buy Old Town Road. Yeah. Right. So, like, I mean, obviously he was like a huge deal, dude. It's true, man. So it was like kind of shocking for a lot of people, myself included. To observe his like relatively slow unwinding into drugs, infamy, and poverty. But considering his life prior to his global fame, should anyone really be surprised? No. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, not at all. It all kind of came full circle, it honestly. Did. And they talk about that a little bit, or at least we've alluded to that a little bit at this point, that he just basically at some point just shut everything down. He turned into this Dark Man X and he just suppressed everything at this point. So now we get down to the later part of his life where, you know, that's where you start getting lost in drugs and you start getting lost in all of this stuff. Yeah. And let's take a look at that because some of it is completely insane. But it hit his rap sheet. Yeah. Because like I said, it's no bueno. Between 1999 and 2003, he racks up pretty standard rapper charges like marijuana possession, driving without a driver's license, disorderly conduct, illegal possession of a gun animal cruelty, and throwing objects at a prison guard. 
Okay. The last two aren't standard rapper stuff, I suppose. But then he really sets the bar for insanity in a 2004 arrest for cocaine possession, criminal impersonation, possession of a weapon, criminal mischief, and driving under the influence of drugs and alcohol. He had claimed to be a federal agent to carjack a vehicle. And like I was going to spend some time like breaking down this whole thing. There was a, a, an article I found, and it's suffice it to say, it's completely nuts. He was totally fucking faded on drugs and then like basically stuck a dude up at an airport and it was like, uh, we're FBI agents. Jeez, uh, that sounds almost like a, a movie right, right. there. You yeah, know? a I, movie of an insane person. No, 100%. But I, I guess the big issue that I have on all that is the animal cruelty. Do we have a little bit more information on that? So he had a bunch of pit bulls at his house and essentially animal control was called out there. And they don't know if he was fighting the pit bulls, but the way in which he was keeping them, the grounds and everything, wasn't deemed to be considered humane or clean or... Yeah, like there were too many dogs in a, that's in a right. pen, so yep. there was a bunch of feces yeah, it, and stuff like There wasn't that. any evidence to really say that he was like beating the dogs or even fighting the dogs, but that he had too many pit bulls in yeah, the one place. Yeah, and he also was a complete drug addict that was, I mean... So maybe it's more of the long lines, like, because it does seem that, like, him growing up, he had an affinity for dogs. He was, you know, always, oh, yeah. you know, bringing tattoo on his back is Boomer. Yeah, and he was buddy. born the year of the dog. I mean, so yeah. uh, his least, dad was Earl Barker or whatever right. his name was. So it seems a little bit more like he was maybe had uh, too big of a heart and was bringing in too many dogs, but, you know, was a drug addict yeah, at the same I, I, time. I, I think you're right. I mean, it, it wasn't like he was, like, fighting the dogs. Or he was beating them or like electrocuting them or whatever it is, you know, like feeding them gunpowder. But he just was like a complete crackhead that couldn't take care of him. And he, like the crazy cat lady. Yeah. yeah. Too yeah. many cats. There you go. There, there you go. go. Good um, analogy. Yeah. So then in 2008, he was also charged for drug possession and animal cruelty again oh. after barricading himself inside his home in Arizona. 2010, he served four months for violating probation and was released. After he was out of jail, he got offered a television pilot that would follow his recovery. The filming had begun, but X got arrested three weeks later, and the development of the series was canceled. On June 26, 2015, he was arrested for committing a robbery in Newark and $400,000 of outstanding child support that he failed to pay to his ex-wife, Tashira Simmons. He just can't quite let go of that robbery job, man. I mean... But what's like arguably crazier than him continuing to like to rob people is the fact that DMX had become the father of 15 children from several women. Nine different women. Yes. yes. 15, 15 fucking kids, man. Like, what the fuck? So, all right, now let's get into the end days for DMX. On February 10th, 2016, Simmons was found unresponsive in a Ramada Inn parking lot in Yonkers, New York. Now think about that. You have sold 74 million albums and they find you in the parking lot of a Ramada. You think you're getting a dollar an album? Let's just say you are. Well, and 74 million dollars that you've made, you know. Oh, dude, it's more his, than that. His and his earnings were it's nuts. And what was really sad was when I looked at what his net worth was and they actually broke it down really well. It wasn't like I just went to net worth celebritynetworth.com yeah <laughs> he had like a negative net worth he had a lot of child support to pay went to jail a few times exactly yeah for not paying child yeah. support yeah oh, ten thousand dollars a month he would have to pay his ex-wife yeah and he missed a couple of payments 
Yeah, exactly. So, like that's one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. That's right. Yeah. Hence, finding you unresponsive in a Ramada Inn parking lot. But he was resuscitated by first responders, and it's he was Narcan. Given, yeah, they gave him Narcan, and he responded uh, quickly to it and became semi-conscious, and he was rushed to the hospital. A witness said that he ingested some type of substance before collapsing, but they said they didn't find any like illegal substances on the property. He said he had an asthma attack. Yeah, that's what it was. So honestly, going back to the asthma thing, I read that as a kid, he had to go to the hospital very, very frequently because of asthma attacks. That's true. Oh, really? Yeah. So as a kid, he had real bad asthma and he'd wake up in the middle of the night, couldn't breathe. And his mom, you know, they didn't have primary care or urgent care, took him to the hospital, took him to the ER like weekly. And they said, which makes you I'm think, surprised though. she even believed in the hospital. That's what I'm saying. That I'm, point, I, and you, well, know? you have that aspect where you're like, all right, she doesn't believe in that. And also like she like hit him in the face with like a mop stick and like knocked his teeth out. At what point did she just not take him to the hospital? Right. And I mean, I had asthma as a kid. It was really bad. I did too. I had it for like five years. Yeah. yeah. My sister you know had it growing yeah, up. But as that's well. the, you kind of grow out of it. You know, you do, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what my sister did. She grew yeah. out of it. Like I said, it's just a weird conflict of stories yeah but my sister at least had a breathing machine that she used for multiple yeah. years and well and your mom wasn't knocking her teeth out with a mop stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that definitely helps but so anyways it brings us to april 2nd 2021 at uh around 11 p.m he's rushed to white plains hospital where he was reported to be in critical condition following a heart attack at his home they said possibly resulting from like a drug overdose which seems pretty, yeah. Unfortunately, pretty, pretty yeah. standard for fare. the course. Yeah. The next day, his attorney Murray Richmond confirmed that DMX was on life support, and then that same night, he suffered cerebral hypoxia, which is like his brain wasn't oxygen. getting oxygen. Yeah. 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 Uh, so cerebral, obviously, being the brain, hypo <laughs> meaning blood and oxygen. And your, brain, you your brain wasn't getting air, and it doesn't yeah. work. They tried to resuscitate him for thirty minutes. His former manager, Nakia Walker, uh, said that he was actually at that point was in a vegetative state and that it, it was it was over, dude. I mean, I remember when this came out, like the news was, uh, you know, he's in a vegetative state and I was like, it's over. It's just a matter of time. You texted us the night before at 1130 at night and you're like, RIP DMX. Yeah. And uh, I remember looking at you woke me up and I was like, damn, he died, huh? And then uh, the next morning I go into work. And I'm like, man, did you hear DMX died last night? And everybody gets on their computer and starts Googling. And they're like, he's not dead. He's not dead yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't even matter. He was dead. Yeah. It was just like, you know. It, it, yeah, it was just an extended state. They said point. it wasn't going to be past that day. And unfortunately, he didn't make it. He lasted sure. a couple more, like, what, more two hours. more days at that yeah. point? Yeah. No, on it, was, the, it was the next day. It was that Friday. That's right. On the morning of April 9th, 2021, Simmons, DMX, lost functionality in multiple essential organs, including his liver, kidneys, and lungs, and was pronounced dead at the age of 50. And that is the sad, wild story of Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX. Yeah. Yeah. Very Final sad. Scores. It is sad. You yeah. know, I mean, you look at everything that he went through in his entire life, and I mean, it's unfortunately just like a really sad story. I mean, you look at everything that he went through in his early life from his mom that just really didn't love him. His dad left him very early. Didn't leave him, but left the family, which left him in the lurch. He had the chance to live with his grandma, which probably would have set him on a better trajectory, but his mom prevented that from happening. 
he went through group home. The system. The social, actually, system. The social work. It's actually system. worse. Yeah. yeah. Homes are worse than foster yeah. care. Yeah. Which 100%. is already. Yeah. It's like, do you want to have butt cancer or do you want to have. Or remember the girls. Had that went, neck cancer. Right. You remember the, the girls that went to high school with us that lived in the group home. They oh. Were, they were wiling God, out. 100%. They were wiling out, man. I know. Yeah. I dated one of them. It's cool. That's a story for another day. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it just seems like he was 12 steps behind yeah. every step along the That's way. Right. And it, it just kind of sucks, you know, and you see a lot of his acting out early on was, you know, could have easily been rectified by if he had just had a solid male and female figure in his life. But he didn't have any of that growing up. And so then you get up into his teenage and, you know, young adult life and he was a troubled teen man yeah like just a troubled youth the whole way through you yeah 100 I mean? I mean it's it's actually lucky that he did find rap and that he found an outlet for all of this and that he was able to succeed because i mean you look at all the statistics he should have been one of the numbers that he should have fallen through the cracks and hit rock bottom counterpoint if he hadn't gone through all that shit we would never have it's dark and hell is hot it's true. And he would have ended up being probably like a dude that was like a uh, assistant manager at like a bodega or some shit. You know if that? we're lucky, you know, who you they, know what I mean. Like you know he should they, have been a homeless yeah, person. You know who they the point end, uh, on, a, on the side of the corner. You know who they point a big finger at? The guy when he was fourteen. Ready, Ron. Ready, Ron. Ready, yeah. Ron gets the big finger pointed at him most of the time. It's true. He's the one that introduced him to cocaine and crack. Well, and Ready, Ron actually made a statement here this week, and he was like, "Dude." That's not true. But what is he going to say? Yeah, of course I did. Of course I did. It. But yeah. the thing yeah. is that, like, you know, there's no individual blame for any of this. Right. right? It's like a culmination of the entire story. Thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there's plenty of people that have, like, normal backgrounds, and then they get addicted to crack cocaine. And there's people that have horrible backgrounds. You look backgrounds. at Charlie Sheen. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Yeah, or maybe not, but no, I mean, yeah. Well, he just, yeah. And go check out the Charlie Sheen episode, honestly. That's true. There was a great story to be told there. His dad was Martin Sheen, man. He yeah. lived in Hollywood. He had a very cherished life. Pretty chill dude. Yeah. And, uh, Emilio Estevez turned out to be totally normal. Right. Yeah. 100%. So, yeah. So, I mean, you just look at it. It's just, unfortunately for him, it seems like he had a really hard life pretty much since the day he stepped onto the earth. And I feel really sorry for him. You know, like he was able to make a big success of his life for a good amount of time of it. But I mean, when you factor in all the different parts of his life, man, it, it's unfortunately just a really sad story. So originally I had him at a 5.0 for my pre-show asshole score. And, you know, I... I think I'm going to leave him at that. I, th I think a 5.0 is, is a good score for him. I think that he had a lot of trouble with the laws. He had a lot of times where he broke the law. He did a lot of, you know, robberies and stuff like that. But, you know, I think a lot of that could have been changed had he just grown up in a normal household and didn't have a father that left and a mom that really didn't give a shit about him, looked at him more as a paycheck uh, from the government more so than an actual son. So I, I think it's just a, a, a sad story all along. So I am going to chalk this one up to the system and I'm going to give DMX a final asshole score of a 5.0. All right, 5.0. What do you think, Randy? So I have to be a little more critical. You got to think when you hear, obviously, the story is terrible. There's been a lot of people, unfortunately, that go through very similar things that he went through. Didn't have the fame and fortune at the end. But think about 
essentially the the victims of a lot of the things that he wound up doing. Imagine getting carjacked. Yeah, right? sure. Imagine um, getting knocked up by this dude and not paying child support. Sure. Um, imagine being robbed, being that lady getting her purse snatched, right? You know, we kind of, it, it sucks to say, but sometimes things like that are glorified. Like, yeah, I was a robber, but I turned out to be a rapper and this, that, and the other. What if that was your mom? They got her perch snatched with a thousand bucks in it. You know what I mean? Very true. They should have a thousand bucks, but yeah, <laughs> you're right. right though. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's five bucks. It's, right. It's, yeah. It's I mean, it's, it's fucking terrifying. Imagine like now if one of our moms were to get her purse snatched and stolen. And yonkers. Yeah. You know, it, so you got to think of the, the other, the flip side of it. And I hate to be critical because, again, I love the dude. I love his music. I grew up with him. But again, he wasn't the greatest person. He, he tried his damnedest to survive and get through the hand he was dealt. Unfortunately, he, he went back to some of the vices that made him do some of the terrible things that he did. I'm up in his score. I'm going to leave him at a, I'm going to put him at a 5.5 okay. final score. Yeah. Mikey. Well, all right. So it's probably pretty obvious at this point that I'm like a pretty huge DMX fan and a bleeding heart liberal where I would like to blame things on like uh, just circumstances of people's lives. But I am going to agree with Randy on this one. There are certain points where you're like, hey, man, there are other victims that are in this game. They don't put albums out. <laughs> like, right. if if it was like the roles were reversed and you're like, my grandmother put out the hottest rap album of 98 and, and she got robbed at a grocery store in Yonkers, and I, <laughs> I would be pissed off. But I mean, I'm going to be honest too. Like, I'm a huge fan of, of his music and stuff like that. But a lot of his background story sounds like mythic. I don't know. You've alluded to it a couple of times, and yeah. you're right. Like the genius IQ, yeah, all the thousand dollars in the purse. You know, yeah, maybe I, it was made up for the story more so than yeah, what the actual right, reality right. was. At the end of the day, like he made great rap albums. He changed the tone of hip hop at a certain time, and like I said, put out literally like one of the. I think, well, top ten, top definitely top ten, but definitely. In, like top five initial albums for any rapper break and breakout albums. Yes. And I, and I love it and I love the whole thing, but I also don't, you know, I, I believe that to an extent, like the story is relatively true. I think it came from a, a bad background and stuff like that, but I can't give him that much of a pass. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to say right now because like his death is so fresh to everybody. So you don't want to seem like a dick or whatever, but I, I think I'm going to go, I'm going to stick to my five, five. I think that, he wasn't a great person, man. I mean, he like I said, he literally robbed some dude at a gas station in New Jersey in like 2015. And actually, if you read the story on that, the guy was like a fan of his. And like, it wasn't DMX that robbed him. It was like one of DMX's people. And DMX just sort of allowed it to happen. And they just drove off. You know, love is dark and hell is hot. But I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and like glorify this dude for what the reality is. And I feel bad for him. But there you go. Well, all right. With a 5.0 from Buddy, a 5.5 from Randy, and a 5.5 from Mikey, DMX's final asshole score is a 5.3. All right, 5.3. So he fits right on the scale in between Ty Cobb and Vince McMahon on our scale of assholes. Thanks about Sound about right? Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I think a lot of people would probably be shocked about Ty Cobb's low score. You should actually <laughs> yeah, go back and check that out because it's it's, a, it's an interesting story. Well, yeah. that was our first episode, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a little rough. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy that. Awesome. All right, guys. We hope you enjoyed this show. 
And uh, again, we've mentioned several times we have a new social media manager and our social media pages are on and popping. Please engage with us. Give us a like. Give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at AHC podcast. Love to engage with you, hear your ideas and uh, keep the conversation going. Until next time, we hope you enjoyed this. And again, be kind to one another. We'll talk to you next time on Asshole Court. Uh, oh.